What a smooth, smooth sound that was, Doc. <laughs> So a little, uh, let's be careful as I ask this first question. Don't want to get anybody in trouble. And you're going to understand what I mean once I ask this question. Have you ever tried to love someone that was difficult to love? No pointing fingers. Okay, good. Have you ever tried to love someone that was difficult to love? Man, is it so hard, right? You pour energy into loving them the best that you can, only to find out that either they can't receive it or they don't want to receive it. And it can leave us feeling very discouraged and potentially even jaded. Relationships are messy that way. They're messy because we're human and human beings are flawed. Bitterness can creep in like a silent and deadly virus. And at first, you don't notice any symptoms. You don't even realize that it's crept in. But there are little changes to your behavior that others can notice. And before you know it, that bitterness starts to take root and become anger and resentment towards the others. How do you love someone that has hurt you? How do you allow yourself to be vulnerable to others when you've been hurt in the past. I spent a lot of my life before Jesus saved me in this mode, if you will. And even a good amount of time after being saved, living my life in a way that was artificial. I hid myself under a mask and pretended to be okay. As a young teenager, I started to make sure that I was always on my best behavior because I desperately wanted to be accepted. I didn't want to give any cause for rejection. I couldn't handle that again. When I first heard the gospel and God's love for me, I was 18. I was dating Amy at the time, was not from a church background. A lot of brokenness in my life up to that point. And I started hearing this, this, this good news that God loved me. And of course, my first question was, well, what do I have to do now? What mask do I have to put on? What, what behavioral changes do I have to do in order to accept this love? And I remember the moment in my life when God broke through that thinking It was when our youth group at the time went to see the movie that was brand new in the theaters called The Passion of the Christ. There was a scene in this movie where Jesus uh, is carrying the cross out of the city on his way to Mount Calvary. He had already been whipped and beaten and, and brutally so, which in and of itself was difficult to witness. He's carrying the cross on his shoulder heavy, already weakened, and he falls, and the cross comes tumbling off of his shoulders. And I remember in this moment feeling angry. I remember feeling angry that this was happening to anyone, let alone the Savior of the world. And then I saw him get up, almost with a determination in his eyes, 
picking that cross back up and continuing on with the mission that God gave him. And I broke something inside of me, broke. And that's when the gospel message took hold, took root. I realized in that moment, with the determination in Jesus' eyes, as he had already been whipped and beaten and bruised and scarred and, and ripped open, in that weakness, he still found strength to pick up the cross and carry it for me. I realized that Jesus chose to love me the way he found me without asking me to make changes first, without asking me to be better, without asking me to clean up my act. He saw through the facade, he, th- he saw through the act that, I, that everybody else was fooled with and loved me that way first. his love for me and for for all of us that he exampled in that moment to me was agape love, which we're going to unpack a little bit later today. Agape love, for those who don't know, is unconditional choice love. It's God's choosing you. This morning's message I've, I've titled Called to Love as God's Chosen People. We're going to be in 1 Peter. If you have your... Your Bibles, I encourage you to open to 1 Peter 1. We're going to start in verse 22. Before we do, I need a little tissue here. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles. If you don't have your own with you, there are some in the pews. We're actually going to make it into chapter 2 this morning. So we're going to read from 1 Peter 1, 22, all the way through 2, verse 3. We have to remember that the original letter didn't have chapters and verses. It would have just been all one letter. And so sometimes we put the chapters and verses in there just so it's easier for us to reference and find and all read at the same place. But this was the stopping point for me as I was choosing or as the Lord led me in the message for this morning. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls... By your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Would you pray with me as we get started? Lord, we have your word open before us this morning. It's been read. We've we've come to you in song And Lord, now we ask that as we have your word open and and are listening to the teaching, Lord, that you would speak. Lord, your word endures forever. Lord, we, we know that each one of us are flawed. Each one of us sin. Each one of us struggle. Each one of us have seasons of doubt 
Each one of us have seasons of conflict and Lord, we, we, we know that even in all of those seasons, your word never fails. It is relevant every day. So Lord, as we come humbly before you this morning with your word, we ask, Lord, that you would speak, that you would use your word to reach our hearts and transform us from the inside out. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, let's start by uh, breaking down this uh, verse 22, right? So, because in verse 22, it, it kind of sets the stage for this section uh, that we're going to unpack. As I was studying in, in the Word this week, there were a couple, a couple things that kind of just jumped off the page, if you would, that I'd like to share with you and, and how these kind of tie in. It's a little bit it's kind of a little bit of a mess to get there, but once we get there and land the plane, I, I hope that it'll be clear. Chapter 22, or excuse me, chap, chapter 1, verse 22, says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And as I was reading that verse, I had to stop at purifying your souls. Because there, there was just something there that just stood out. This word purify means literally to make clean, to be free of contamination, right? To be pure. And the word for souls here literally means our soul, but we get it from the, the Greek word psyche, uh, which means vital breath, breath of life or human soul. They go on to define it as the seat of, of the feelings, desires, affections, aversions, our heart and soul, etc. When, when Peter says soul here, he's literally talking about the very distinct component that separates mankind from all the rest of God's creation. And the definition here says that it exactly corresponds to three Hebrew words which I'll spell. I should have put these up on a slide, but my week got away from me. I apologize. First one is spelled C-H-A-Y. C-H-A-Y. This is a Hebrew word, which is pronounced key, like a key. This word means alive or living. The second word is nefesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H also a Hebrew word, which means soul or vital breath, divine inspiration and intellect. And then the third word that that psyche uh, encompasses is ruach, R-U-W-A-C-H. And this means breath, wind, or spirit. And this Greek word, psyche, encompasses exactly those three words in it. So where do we see these three words in Old Testament? Because remember, the Old Testament would have been written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Well, we see it right in the very beginning, Genesis. Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit, 
Ruach of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed, nefesh, into his nostrils the breath of life, ki. And the man became a living, ki, creature, nefesh, soul. So we can see in the beginning, in God's creation, in the formation of man, these three Hebrew words that talk about life, vital breath, soul, and spirit are the very breath that breathed us into existence from God himself. We call that the soul. It is the only eternal aspect within us that lives forever. Our bodies die, right? They'll decompose in the earth one day, but our soul is this eternal part of us that was breathed out of God himself into us. And so when, when Peter says, having purified your souls, this is what he's talking about, that component within us. He says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That obedience is the, uh, an idea of submissiveness and compliance. To the truth is, is talking about truth, not merely as spoken, but divine truth revealed to man. And this reminded me of uh, John 4.23 where uh, it says, true worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Right? What is truth? God's word that was revealed by the spirit through man. Right? We have record of the truth, but we're also uh, understanding that that truth comes by way of the spirit and that the Holy Spirit will never contradict the word. He can't because he's the one that spoke it. And so it talks about here, he says, by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. This sincere brotherly love, sincere means without hypocrisy. It's sincere. There's no double talk. And brotherly love here is the Greek word phileo, which means brotherly love, meaning to love a Christian brother or sister. And I, and I had to take a pause and I, I said, well, wait a minute. How, how, is purif- how, how do we purify our souls by obedience to the truth? Because purifying our souls happens at salvation by the blood of Christ. So what is Peter talking about here, right? Peter's talking about sanctification, the ongoing transformation process, right? He's saying, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He's talking about sanctification. As we, as we continue to purify our souls uh, that get contaminated by sin, as we purify our souls by surrendering, by submission to the Holy Spirit, that is the progressive sanctification process. It says, having purified for the sincere brotherly love, for this love for one another that, that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ without backbiting, without hypocrisy. It says, having done this, then we're commanded 
to love. Well, wait a minute. He just said that we're loving one another, right? He says, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Well, he switches. We, in, in English, we have one word for love, love, right? Greek had four, and they each meant something different. So you have phileo, which is from Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, which was used in the, right there when it says for a sincere brotherly love. That's, that's the Greek word phileo, which means brotherly love. It's, it's also where we get the Philadelphia, right? Or New Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? That, that's where that comes from. There's also a Greek word for love called eros, which would be like erotic love, right? That you would have with your wife or your spouse, Right? Um, then there's storgy, which I can't remember exactly what that one was, but that one's more like fellowship love, love that you would have for others. And then there's agape love. The word here where it says love one another earnestly from a pure heart, he switches to agape one another. So he's switching from brotherly love, phileo, to agape so he's saying, you have purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere, for a phileo love. Now, agape one another. Agape is an unconcerned with self. It's concerned with the greatest good of another. Agape is not born just out of emotions, feelings, familiarity, or attraction, but from the will as a choice. Agape requires faithfulness, commitment, and sacrifice without expecting anything in return. That's agape love. It's self-sacrificial love. I kind of remind, this, this kind of talk is, is interesting because it reminded me of Peter's reinstatement. Where Jesus is, has risen from the grave, he's, he's on the shore, and, and, and Peter and some of the disciples are out fishing and Peter sees Jesus standing on the shore, and he goes, it's the Lord, you know, because Jesus said, hey, try casting your net on the other side. And instantly, Peter knew that it was Jesus risen again. And he swims, he, he jumps in, and he swims to the shore, right? And, and Peter and Jesus have this, this talk that's found in, in John 21, verses 15 to 19, where, where Jesus asks Peter three times if he loves him, Right? Well, why did he do that? Well, Peter denied him three times. So Jesus is reinstating Peter, right? But the questions we don't get to see in, in, our, in our translations is that Jesus three times, oh, excuse me, twice, the first time, Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. He doesn't respond with agape. He says, phileo. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. Tend my sheep. And he asks him again, and Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? And that's when Peter breaks and he goes, Lord, you know everything. You know my heart. You know where I stand. You know I phileo you. Here in First Peter, we see a transformed Peter and he, this reminds me of this conversation that he had with Jesus. He says, now that your souls have been 
purified by your obedience through sanctification for a brotherly love, now agape one another from a pure heart. But he doesn't say just agape one another. He says agape one another earnestly. What does that mean? Strenuously, fervently, intently, intentionally from a pure heart. This, this word heart, uh, you have to remember that in Greek, heart was uh, the, the re- reference to like the mind. It was where your thoughts came from, your intentions, your inner self. And so when they, when they used heart, that's what they were talking about, your thoughts flow from the heart. So even though we understand our heart to be, you know, what keeps us alive and pumps and pumps blood through, when they, when they talk about heart, they're talking about the inner self, who we are, right? And so Peter is saying to, you've done well to, to, to be sanctified to the point of brotherly love, but now the next step is to agape, intentionally one another, from a pure inner self, pure intentions. And it's in that where I, I had to pause and I said, this is impossible in my strength. It is impossible for me to agape another person without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible for me to love my neighbor this way even if, I have, even if I want to desperately be so selfless and self-sacrificing in my love, I won't do it perfectly. I need the Holy Spirit. And I have to be surrendered to him in order to love this way. And that's what Peter's talking about. Why? Why, why does Peter tell us through our sanctification to change from phileo brotherly love to agape love with all we are. Verse 23, he says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It's the result. It's the result of the regeneration that's taking place with God through the Holy Spirit working in your life. It's, a, it's the fruit that comes from that. It says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. God's word, this reminds me two verses. God's word is living and active. Hebrews 4.12. God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We know that, our, that the word that the Lord has given us is living and active. The second verse came to mind is 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, correction, rebuking, and training up in righteousness. This, this word God-breathed, by the way, only appears once in scripture, right here, 2 Timothy 3.16. It's a compound word for Theo being God in nuestra, pneuma, for, for breathed, God's spirit, breathed. We're, we're almost landing the plane for this first point here. All scripture is God breathed. 
Our souls are God-breathed. God's word never dies, has lasted the test of time. Isn't it interesting that, the, that we have a word that comes from his very breath and an eternal part in us that comes from his very breath? And we're promised that neither one will die. It's like one of those moments that, I, you know, you, you just have with the Lord and you just, like, break down and you go, wow, I would have never saw those two things line up. Abiding, the living and abiding word. This word abiding means remaining or enduring. I have a a slideshow. I'm going to have the guys bring up here. I actually have a handout that I put on the back table. Um, You know, you hear all the time that, that the the Bible has withstood a lot of, a lot of hatred and destruction throughout the years. And you've heard people try to say, well, the Bible's not valid or accurate, right? And they try to attack the Bible. So I did some, some research, and there's a lot of, lot of different websites out there available. This first uh, one is, is unpacking the method that historians would use to validate whether something is uh, a historical document would be valid. Uh, and so you can't see the reference there, but it's on the sheet of paper. Um, there, the, the article that I found had nine methods, nine questions to ask as you're doing the research to prove validity of a historical document. And I just put the top four here because I felt like they were the most relevant the first question, uh, well, here, to produce, this comes from the, the website that is on the paper from margotnote.com. It's a, it's a counseling for historical evidence and relevancy. From their website, it says, to produce sound historical research, we need reliable primary sources, records created at the same time as an event or as close as possible to it usually have a greater chance of being accurate than records created years later, especially by someone without first-hand knowledge of the event. When you are conducting research, you want to corroborate the contents of the document you are working with, information from other sources that have been proven to be legitimate. So what they're talking about there is the closer that the uh, authorship is to the event, the more valid the event is, the more valid the history is. Okay, uh, with me so far? And so the top four questions, the first one was, was the source created at the same time of the event it describes? If not, who made the record, when and why? Who furnished the information? Was the informant in a position to give correct facts? Right? Uh, was, the, was the informant using secondhand information? Number three, is the information in the record such as names, dates, places, events, and relationships, logical? Does it make sense in the context of time, place, and people being researched? And four, does more than one reliable source give the same information? So with that understanding of, uh, of unpacking whether something is valid, let's look at uh, philosophical works that the world has deemed valid. Philosophical works. We have Aristotle's work. There's a thousand manuscripts that have been dated 1,200 years from those actual events, written in 384 to 322 BC. The earliest copies are dated AD 850. 
Plato's work has 210 manuscripts, also dated 1,200 years from the events. So we see with our philosophical works that, that our colleges and, and uh, history deem worthy and valid are dated 1,200 years from when those events actually took place. What about historical documents that we teach as history? Probably the most notable is Homer's Iliad, right? Which depicts the history of the Trojan War. There have been uncovered 1,757 manuscripts dated 400 years. Okay, so that's, that's closer, right? That's a little more valid. There's, there, it's less time in between, okay? From the events written 800 BC with the earliest copy dated 400 BC. You know, there, were some other, there were some other historical documents, but this is pretty much the, the most common taught historical document. Well, would you agree that God's word both has philosophy, a way of life, and, and history. What, how, does the Bible, how, does, how does the Bible account? There have been 25,000 manuscripts found of the New Testament alone. 5,795 of those Greek manuscripts are dated 30 to 150 years from the events. Not 1,200 not 400, 30 years. There's over 7,974 manuscripts in other languages, such as Armenian, Coptic, Gothic, Ethiopian, Syriac, Georgian, and Slavic, dated early 2nd century and on, still 100 to 150 years. And then there's over 10,000 manuscripts in the Latin Vulgate, dated from the 3rd century and on, 300 to 350 years. All of those happen before, or closer to the events than even Homer's Iliads. So you tell me, how does the Bible last? And how do we validate whether God's word is actually true? Well, by the same science the world uses for other historical documents. God's word has withstood the test of time, has withstood emperors that have chosen to burn the Bible, destroy it with vengeance, and yet we have more copies from ancient, we're talking like ancient copies, manuscripts of the word supersede any other historical and philosophical work available to us. So when Peter says, through the, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, you can take that to the bank. You can take it to the bank. His word is living and active and abiding. It remains forever. He shifts gears here and he says, contrast that truth to the flesh. Right? In verse 24, he says, and he's quoting Old Testament, he says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. He's contrasting the truth of God's word that lasts forever in, in this imperishable seed to the flesh 
being like grass that withers and dies one day. And he says that this word is the good news that was preached to you. It is the gospel. So what do we do with that? What do we do because of this transformation that has taken place inside of us and being called to love as God's chosen people? What does that look like? Chapter two. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He says, loving like God looks like this. Put away all malice. What is malice? Evil, wickedness, and spite. Put away all of it. Put away all deceit, guile, treachery, trickery. Put it all away. Put away all hypocrisy, no backbiting, no acting one way and then one moment and then acting a different way because you're with a different crowd. That's hypocrisy. You have to put that away. Put away all envy, all grudges and jealousy, right? You have to put all of that away. And slander is backbiting, defamation, evil speaking, Oh, man, if, if our governments would just take that one alone, what a different world we'd live in. He says, put away. Because, because you've been purified by your obedience through the sanctification process, loving one another bro- uh, in a brotherly love, now agape from a pure heart, since you've been born again. So, since that is true, put away the old self. Put away the malice, the deceit, the slander, the hypocrisy and envy. You can't, you can't live there anymore. It can't be true of you. Put it all away. It says, like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk. Right? It says, to love like God's people To love agape in a self-sacrificial way, you have to put away all the wickedness, all the slander, and instead, be like a baby. Instead, be like a baby who longs for the milk, who craves the milk. But not just any milk, the pure spiritual milk, right? We're called to be so in love with the word and God that we long for it. We long for the truth so that you may grow. What is this? Sanctification, right? We're growing into our salvation. We are already saved, but we're growing into more and more that surrendered life. It says, if indeed, this would be true, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The reality is when we experience God's goodness, including but not limited to salvation, we can't help but want more of that goodness. We can't help but want to taste more, to taste it again. And he says, like a newborn infant, long for that spiritual milk. 
that by it, by that spiritual milk, you may grow up into salvation. We're called to love as God's chosen people, but not just love like the world loves. We're to love in an agape way, self-sacrificially, selflessly, not selfishly, selflessly. We're called to love that way. We know that when the world sees us love in that manner, they'll know Jesus. They'll know that God sent him when we love him that way and we love the world that way, that self-sacrificially way. But we can't do it in our own strength. We need the Holy Spirit to lead us, right? The Holy Spirit is, is the, the third person in the Trinity who dwells inside each one of us, right? It's an eternal, he is an eternal God who lives inside of you. And as you surrender to the Holy Spirit, he will transform you, right? It's interesting, uh, that connection that was made about uh, the breath, the soul that God breathed into Adam through his nostrils and a soul was created, living soul through his breath. It's also interesting that the very word was breathed the same way, that it's God breathed. I'd like to transition to a closing song with that in mind. Uh, As I was preparing this song. This is probably a new one for you. Um, I do have lyrics. If you know the song, you're, you're, you're invited to sing along. Um, my friends, as, as we wrap up our time in the Word, just know that you are called to love self-sacrificially, selflessly, because you're God's people. And it's, it's not something you can do on your own. It takes that daily, moment-by-moment moment surrender to the Holy Spirit because you, can't, you and I can't love that way on our own. We can try, but we will not do it well. Would you pray with me as we close and, and go to our closing song? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for breathing life into existence, Lord. Thank you for your word that has endured persecution, has endured the history that it has endured. And not only has it endured, it has endured greatly. We thank you for the testimony earlier of how your word never returns void. Thank you for that. Thank you for the testimony shared earlier. Lord, we need your help to to live this life that you've called us to live as believers, to love selflessly. It does not come naturally to us. Teach us, Lord, to surrender every moment of every day to your will so that we might love like you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.